Hello, welcome to Farmgate, I'm Finlow Castain. Our current mini-series about ocean food is responding to sea spiracy. The Netflix film concluded that there's no such thing as sustainable fishing. Well, that's a pretty blunt statement and one that fails to recognise the enormous efforts that are being made by so many people. In previous programmes, we've discussed the challenges of overfishing, taken a critical look at aquaculture, spoken to the Marine Stewardship Council about their blue eco-label supply chain, and learned about how the Isle of Man brought its shellfish fisheries back from the brink of collapse. In this programme, we visit Sierra Leone and look at how this West African country has worked with international stakeholders to address overfishing and to assert its marine authority, particularly in the waters inside its six-mile-wide inshore exclusion zone. Saliu Sanko is the coordinator of the World Bank-funded West African Regional Fisheries Programme in Sierra Leone. Phil Gorn is an advisor to the fisheries programme and a former fisheries minister for Isle of Man government, which has made substantial contributions through its international aid budget. Hello, both. Hi, Finlow. Hi, Finlow. Salyu, what's the purpose of the West African Regional Fisheries Programme? What's the problem that it's seeking to address? Thank you, Finlow. The West Africa Regional Fisheries Programme was not a project like the traditional projects that the ministry used to benefit from. This was a programme of support that was structured to be delivered in three phases. Phase one was to look at governance structures and reform these governance structures towards achieving sustainable fisheries. Once that is achieved, then the next step was looking at investment through private sector involvement to see how the fisheries can better benefit um, Sierra Leone and the West Africa region as a whole. So the first consideration was to look at what are the existing governance structures, how can these be made more efficient. And then the next thing was we had a challenge of illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing, both from within the country and from outsiders who were dominating the industrial fisheries sector. And at the time, we were estimating that uh, illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing is causing the country to lose about $29 million annually. And so this was a big challenge for the fishery sector. So the project had set up to actually address illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing to look at the governance structures and bring about reforms that would ensure efficiency in the management of the fisheries. Thank you, Sally. That's a fantastic overview. Phil, if I could just come to you, the Isle of Man, how and why did you and the Isle of Man get involved? Well, it was a very lucky uh, series of circumstances, really. I was fisheries minister at the time. My fisheries director was getting itchy feet and he noticed a secondment that had been suggested suggested uh, with the World Bank in Sierra Leone for this very project, the fisheries project. So he asked me, would I be willing to let him go for a, a few months? And I said, yes. And of course, he returned very enthusiastic and said, there's so much more that we could do here. The Isle of Man could help quite significantly. And really, from that point on, I, I was hooked. We had a redundant patrol vessel and we thought, well, you know, we, we can certainly help with that. 
So it was arranged for the redundant uh, patrol vessel to be shipped out to Freetown. I made a visit and during that visit I was uh, able to assist with the World Bank team and uh, Salyu with a few ideas. Came back to the Isle of Man and said that we could fund a vessel monitoring system. We could provide some support by way of capacity building and uh, really for the next four or five years we uh, put a load of support in. Thanks, Phil. We're going to get more into the detail of that as we as we go forward. Sally, coming back to you, when you started in 2010, I mean, that's, that's over a decade ago now, how were you able to assess the state that the fishery was in? Um, and, and not just the state of the fishery in terms of the economics, but also the state of the marine environment itself? It was um, a difficult thing to do to assess the fisheries as a whole at the time, because there were very few studies that had been conducted before, and there were very few information in terms of the data available to us. Data that was collected had not been analyzed at the time, and uh, we really had to start from a very uncertain situation. So this was where we actually had to hire a lot of expertise. For instance, we hired the then director of fisheries in the Isle of Man to develop for us a sustainable fisheries MCS system, monitoring, control, and surveillance system. And then we hired the Marine Resource, MRAG, Marine Resource Assessment Group in the UK to do a stock assessment for us so that we see exactly how much are we currently taking from our waters and how much, how much can we take on a sustainable basis. So with those fish stock assessments, with the uh, sustainable fishes management, we also hired another a German guy to do for us uh, a strategy for community fisheries management system. So we had relied mostly on international experts to actually do some studies for us. Just thinking for a moment about that stock assessment, um, in broad terms, what did it discover? Well, the stock assessment had indicated that already there were some species that are now currently fully exploited. There are a few other species that are already being overexploited, and there were a few species, particularly the pelagic stocks that are still very healthy at the time. So we were then now going to look at the options of what to manage, where to manage, and things like that. And so the idea of the marine protected areas, the idea of community surveillance, the idea of strengthening the surveillance capacity of the ministry and the monitoring capacity of the ministry came on very strongly. And this is where we were very happy when the Isle of Man came in to help us with the patrol boats. At the time, we were still developing technical specs to procure our own boats. We didn't have any boats. So the Isle of Man came in handy and gave us a boat. They also came in and gifted us 60 uh, units of transponders that we were now using to monitor vessels and be able to tell where they are at any particular time. It's interesting to hear that, you know, that there were some species that were underexploited as well as species that were overexploited. Now, if I look down from Google Earth onto Sierra Leone and its coastline, I see blue. I don't get any sense of, of what the underwater landscape is like. And I wonder if you could just sort of help to draw us a picture in terms of how varied that marine landscape is. Interestingly, in the northern flank of the uh, coastal waters of Sierra Leone are very shallow. We have a region in the oceans we call the continental shelf, 
which is an area that is below 200 meters deep. And in the northern part of Sierra Leone, that is from Freetown going towards Guinea, the continental shelf is very wide, about 80 kilometers. And that is a very rich area for fisheries because a lot of the nutrients that are washed on land from rivers are brought into this area. And because of that rich nutrients, you have a lot of productivity, primary productivity, photosynthesis is taking place. And so phytoplankton, zoo planting are in abundance. Therefore, the fish are drifted towards that for feeding. In the southern end of the country, towards the border with Liberia, the continental shelf is very narrow. It's only about 13 kilometers compared to 80 kilometers in the north. And so there, the species composition is different because although there are rivers bringing a lot of uh, nutrients as well, the sea gets very deep very quickly. And therefore, artisanal fishers, for instance, are not able to venture too far out at sea because of the danger of drowning and things like that. So this is the kind of bathymetry. That's so interesting. And, And Phil, Sierra Leone's fishing industry is essentially an artisanal industry, as Sally you just commented. So that's, you know, it's a lot of wooden boats from Sierra Leone's own fishers. If it wasn't for the really big boats and the industrial scale approach to fishing that's coming in towards Sierra Leone from China, Russia, Korea, France and Spain, etc., do you think there would ever have been a sustainability problem for Sierra Leone's fishery? Well, obviously, I mean, you rightly identified the industrial fishery is a significant problem for Sierra Leone in that inevitably it takes a lot more fish. But there is, I mean, there's there's some good elements to the industrial fishery. You know, the further out off the continental shelf out to the 200-mile limit, there's some fishing taking place out there which the artisanal fishery couldn't actually uh, engage with. But uh, there has been a a significant problem with the industrial fishery fishing too close to the shore, and that has caused problems. It's arguable that actually because of the significant growth in population in Sierra Leone, that there would have been an increasing pressure anyway in relation to the artisanal fishery because the more people there are to feed, the more fishermen will want to go out to catch fish. Added to which, of course, there's considerable poverty in the country. And if fishing, the artisanal fishery is seen as a successful industry, actually get a reasonable living, then people are going to want to get into that industry. So so that I, I think there, there was an inevitability to that. But when you add on to that the fact that uh, external markets are buying fish from the artisanal fishery, which means that the the people of Sierra Leone is not the only market, but there's also this external and lucrative uh, market as well. That has led to significant pressures on the artisanal uh, fishery as well. We can split that into two, I suppose. Let's look at the industrial aspect first, how to deal with those boats coming into Sierra Leone's waters. And then perhaps a bit later, we can come back to the population growth and the success of the artisanal fishing industry sector and look at the potential impacts of that. So for now, Salyu, clearly one of the biggest challenges that Phil mentioned there was that taking back control of the inshore exclusion zone. I mean, you talked about this a little bit before, but I wonder if you could go into a bit more detail about how you went about doing this. Firstly, the control of the industrial sector was largely managed by the introduction of the vessel monitoring system. Because as you 
rightly pointed out earlier that um, if we had left the artisanal fishermen to fish within the continental shelf area and all the industrial vessels going far out at sea, probably would not be too worried about sustainability in the sector. But then these artisanal uh, the industrial uh, fleet started coming inshore, particularly towards the south, to actually fish for the massal fish species, which are very expensive, high-value species. And so there was this conflict between the industrial and the artisanal. And, and this was illegal, the, the big ships coming in at that point, that was illegal, was it? It was illegal because our law says they cannot fish within six miles offshore. And so they should have stayed out of the inshore exclusion zone, but they were exploiting at the time our incapacity to monitor and the incapacity to actually arrest them if they do come there. But with the introduction of the vessel monitoring system, we were now able to actually see them live in real time if they move into the IEZ with, uh, in our monitoring system sitting in front of a computer screen. And then, of course, we had the Isle of Man vessel that we can use actually to launch a quick patrol and arrest them. And so how, how big is this vessel? Around uh, 16 meters long. Okay, so about, it's, a, it's a sizable boat. Yes, it's fairly big, but um, relative to all the other craft that we had at the time. It was a very successful operation. We had also intelligence reports, people telling us that boats are within the IEZ and so we can launch quick surveillance patrol and actually apprehend them within uh, doing the act. So, so tell so, me what happens when, when you go out with the fisheries vessel and you arrest them in the act, what happens okay. to them then? We, we had find a lot of them. Uh, within 2010 to 2012, we were able to raise more than $3 million in fines from these uh, operations. And uh, this sent a very clear message to a lot of industrial operators that uh, Sierra Leone is no longer the, the place to go and take fish freely. So when we started arresting and finding some of them, we had a rush for acquiring a fishing license in Sierra Leone at the time. And then revenue from the fishery sector started climbing up, jumping up. Before this program, for instance, the revenue from the fisheries was around $600,000 a year, which was around uh, 4 billion loons. And then later on, it started growing until we went up to over 100 billion. Can you give us that as a percentage of GDP, Sally? It's about 12% now. And, and, and that's climbed from where? From um, 9% to, to 12% now. So very successful. And, and I'm just, I don't want to obsess about this, but I'm very interested in what happens to these boats that, that get arrested out there. So what I'm imagining is that you're, you're somehow managing to persuade or pull um, a Chinese or a Russian boat back to shore in Freetown uh, and that they're then stranded there. They're not allowed to leave until the fine's been paid. Is that right? Yes, correct. That was what we used to do. And interestingly, at the time, they were so caught on the on the acts that they didn't argue at all. So we had what we call administrative fines. You were caught doing this. Is that correct? Yes, I did that. Can you pay this fine? And then they pay. And at the time, of course, the fines were really very reasonable, so they, did, they didn't have much trouble paying the fines. So, Sally, the programme's been running for 10 years now. You've talked about some of the successes there, but in general terms, do you think that it's been worth the investment, it's been worth the time that's been put into it, it's been successful? Very much so. Firstly, this programme has introduced a lot of transparency into the sector. It has improved the lives of the artisanal fishermen in some respect. 
and it has thrown light into the fact that there is money in fishing. Before now, we didn't know that there is money in fishing, but now the government and people of Seattle are benefiting much more from the sector. Phil, I'm curious because Sally has already talked about, you know, the way that the Isle of Man helped with fisheries vessel, uh, with transponders and that sort of thing. I'm wondering, in terms of the governance of the fishery, what your experience was going over to Freetown, to Sierra Leone, what you thought about the governance there and how whether you were able to make suggestions about how to streamline the way that Sierra Leone and its government were approaching these challenges? Yes, certainly. Obviously, the the technology was really very important, but we were also able to give advice on how we do things in the Isle of Man. I mean, the Isle of Man is not that similar to Sierra Leone in that some of the bigger models of how to control fisheries don't work because Isle of Man is relatively small. Sierra Leone's administration is relatively small and very sort of threadbare. I think it's fair to say, you know, the the officers are are not paid a very significant amount of money. They struggle with equipment and the technology. So the fact that we were able to help them with that and also perhaps to advise a little bit on, on how you would go about administering your fishery with a much more constrained budget and constrained uh, resource, I think uh, that was, well, I hope it was helpful anyway. You were suggesting when we spoke before the podcast that there were some mechanisms that have been set up um, in Sierra Leone which actually compounded the problems that existed? Well, certainly in my uh, view, the World Bank approach had been very much based on the, uh, you know, in an ideal world where resource was no object, how would you go about managing this fishery? And there didn't seem to be an awful lot of experience or understanding of the intense pressures that come on both in terms of the general administration and in terms of the politics. You know, the minister may have signed up entirely to everything the World Bank was saying, but uh, the minister then had to translate the policies into something that would be understandable to the people of Sierra Leone. And that that in itself is quite a difficult thing to do, Uh, but added to which, you know, the demand that for separation of powers in a number of different areas, whilst in theory works exceptionally well, in practice, in a relatively small jurisdiction with very limited resource, you have to be a little bit pragmatic about how you go about managing these things. I think I was able to, to give a little bit of advice on that from our practical experience in the Isle of Man. I think one of the examples you were using was about licence holders. So each vessel in Sierra Leone has to, by law, or have an agent if they aren't Sierra Leone national owned. And I don't think any of the industrial fisheries, or at least if, if there are any, there are very few in number, or uh, actually uh, any of the vessels owned by Sierra Leone national. So they all have agents. Also, there's an observer uh, on, on each vessel as well. The idea of the agent is so that the vessel owner can deal through the agent with the uh, Sierra Leone authorities which uh, is really very important for the people in Sierra Leone. Unfortunately, what that does, though, is create another layer of bureaucracy and cost to the the whole system, which means that perhaps the money that could be going to ensure good government can be afforded ends up going into to fund the the expenses of the agents. And presumably this agent, uh, it could be the same agent for every vessel? Potentially, yes. 
Yes. And what about the observers that you that you were talking about on board? Well, I think the people in Sierra Leone aren't paid a huge amount of money. The catches that they were monitoring are very significant. Uh, so you can see if you are several uh, miles out to sea and you note discrepancies in the way things are being reported, it's very difficult for you as the only person on that vessel who isn't part of the crew, but you're there as a separate uh, agent to monitor things. It must be very difficult. And uh, indeed, I know it is very difficult for some of these people to be able to provide accurate reports when effectively the vessel owner is putting or the captain is putting pressure on you to um, perhaps uh, give a, a lower uh, tally than, than, than what's actually been caught. And so, presumably with the sort of money that's involved in, you know, some of these bigger catches, that could have been quite a dangerous position for an observer to be in. Yes, it, it, it is uh, potentially dangerous. It was always something that we were concerned about uh, in any of the discussions we were having. And I think and indeed the, the ministry officials recognised that this could be a problem. Salyu, do you think that over the last few years, some of these challenges, some of these problems that have arisen that you've been able to deal with or recommend that the government deal with in different ways? Yes, to some level. For instance, um, Phil mentioned the problems or challenges of the observers on board the vessel. In the past, there are instances when observers are thrown out of boats and they would have to swim to safety for themselves. We've heard of reports of beating of observers on board vessels. But what made it worse, in fact, was that these observers were actually paid by the companies through the agents. And so they really had some kind of obligation towards the companies rather than the government that they were representing on board the vessels. That has now changed. Um, government still requires the companies or the operators to pay for the observer services, but they are not paying the observers directly. They are paying it as part of the, the license fee, and then government pay the observers. And of course, their pay package has now improved to an extent that, in fact, some of the observers are now earning more than the fisheries officer, which is another challenge that we're trying to, to look at. We tried several times to convince the bank, as Phil actually mentioned earlier, the bank was looking at their own policies. You cannot pay extra amount of money to fishes officers because they already have a contract with government. And uh, of course, this contract with government is not really paying them an awful lot. And many of them are really basically surviving. And so if you are asking somebody to manage a resource, that is worth millions of dollars. And you are paying that individual maybe 100 or $200 at most a month. Then certainly you have a challenge there that um, everybody would know is a very big one. And this may be naive, but uh, I mean, is it possible for observers to, you know, wear body cams or something like that so that they themselves are, are monitored and their safety is checked? Yes, it is possible. Um, of course, when you have uh, laws that are enforced and uh, the operator know that if they do anything to the observers, they would face the full uh, force of the law. They would never do that. They would never try it. That's one important thing. And in the past, they used to do that and they go scot-free. Nothing happens to them. 
these days it's different, completely different. You, if you mistakenly touch any observer on board your vessel, you will be grounded for life. Okay. You will never reach in Sierra Leone again. I just wonder, Salyu, if you could talk to me about your experience of working with the World Bank, how you found that. Well, I think the World Bank's conditionalities or policies seem to be applied as if the whole world or all the nations of the world are like the same. Different countries have different cultures, traditions, and different economic developments in terms of levels of development. And so if you try to implement policies that are one size fits all, we would really struggle to succeed in some countries while other countries are making progress. For instance, some countries are already, the governments are paying people very well. Therefore, if you bring your projects there, the project officers and the government officials will not have any problems because they are almost at the same level. Their take-home pay is almost at the same level. When Sierra Leone, for instance, where a project officer is paid very well, maybe 20 times what the fisheries officer is getting, I mean, for those two people to work amicably and try to bring progress following the rules equally is a big challenge and sometimes you find it very difficult as a project officer paid by world bank to really get the full support of the ministry staff that are paid uh, by governments because they would think oh he's behaving that way because he's well paid compared to us world bank should actually be looking at which country they're dealing with and which policies would help successfully implement their program. It's really interesting to hear about it from Sierra Leone's perspective. And Phil, you've said that you felt that there was a tendency for international institutions not always to value local knowledge and experience as much as perhaps they should have done. I wonder, looking at it from the outside, what was your experience of the whole thing? It was absolutely clear to me that the World Bank team didn't really uh, appreciate the difficulties of the people they were trying to work with. There didn't seem to be anywhere near the amount of empathy that I would have expected. You know, the expectation was that if World Bank sent out an email with documents in on the Friday, that the officers would spend their weekend working on this and have a response ready for Monday morning, assuming, of course, that these officers were, were well paid and uh, were prepared to do overtime and prepared to give up uh, a lot of their time. The reality was that the officers were, were not getting paid anywhere near the amount of money they should be getting paid. Uh, now, some of that is an issue, an internal issue with the government because as Salyu's mentioned, the return to government from the fisheries is now significant and it could uh, afford to pay its staff a reasonable salary. But when you have all the other commitments of government or issues to try and deal with, you know, healthcare systems, education systems, what have you, when a large amount of revenue starts coming in, you're probably not going to be inclined to spend it on fisheries enforcement officers and you're probably more inclined to want to spend it on new schools and hospitals. So so I, I, I get the politics of it. And I think sometimes this was absent from the World Bank thinking that, you know, it, that in some way, because the revenue was coming in, well, that's obvious then. You just need to pay your officers properly. Well, that works if the fisheries ministry 
existed on its own without any of the other competing pressures of government. Uh, but quite clearly, that's not the case. The obvious reason why the World Bank didn't make as much progress, perhaps, as it should have done was the issue that Salyu has uh, raised there. As the World Bank paid officer, he was getting paid substantially more than the people he needed to work with him in the ministry. Now, even with the most understanding people in the world, they're going to have a, a difficulty with that. And indeed, you know, the, the officers working in the ministry in very senior positions were working with very old and outdated equipment. They weren't getting paid a reasonable salary. So it's not going to motivate them. However, the World Bank rule says you can't provide the support to those officers that they need. Phil, I wonder, and perhaps you're in a better position because you're you're not in Sierra Leone, to sort of be quite straight about this. You'd expect that the World Bank would be used to handling these kinds of relationships. And the fact that it, it isn't doing it in Sierra Leone implies that it possibly isn't doing that elsewhere as well. And I wonder, is it a sort of a white saviour mentality that's there that's says we know better than this uh, this country that's uh, that's relatively poor in comparison with other bigger countries that are funding the work that we do is it that or is it that there is just institutional pressure within the world bank itself that leads to a kind of institutional ignorance when people in the UK or the USA for example that are based there are dealing with people in poorer countries in smaller administrations well i think there's two elements i think there is a certain amount of uh, we're from the West, where the white uh, faces and we know best. There's a certain amount of that. I don't think it's quite as overt as that, but uh, it, it is there. I think the, the bigger issue, though, for me, and, and you know, I, I think we've picked a bit on the World Bank here because obviously it's a World Bank programme, but in my experience, the same could be said of any of the major international uh, donors. The issue is more about they have rules that they have to apply because they have donors themselves, you know, various nations of the world fund these projects. So they have to be accountable to their donors. So they create a one size fits all approach to how they manage the money. They have to, to a certain extent, because, you know, Sierra Leone, there's no secret, is uh, quite high up on the, the league table of corrupt countries as indeed are most of the countries, I think, that uh, international donors are trying to help. So there has to be some control over the finance. I totally get that. But there doesn't seem to be any flexibility to allow for the obvious situation on the ground in the case of this project, which was you know, the ministry can't pay its officers enough and you're not able to pay them anything. And as a result of that, most of the rest of the, the objectives of the project struggled. So I, I think I can understand where the pressures come from. I can understand that the whole need for transparency and integrity of the financial process needs to be properly done. But the total lack of flexibility meant that this uh, project was almost doomed not to succeed. And yet, despite all that, Salyu, it clearly has succeeded. I mean, you gave me the statistic earlier on uh, of, of uh, the fishery and uh, the amount that it's making in terms of GDP has gone up from 9% to 12%. So that's obviously an economic boon in terms of, uh, of Sierra Leone's fishery. What, what about the fish themselves? What's the impact on sustainability of the fishery? Have those stocks that were overexploited been able to bounce back over the last 10 years? Well, I tell people that um, when you manage the fisheries, you're looking at sustainability. You're not really managing the fish in the water because they would not even listen to you. You're actually managing the people that depend on the fish. 
that are harvesting the fish, that are uh, exploiting this, the, the resource. And so if you are able to put the people that depend on the fishes under control, including the managers themselves, then you would go a long way to succeed. And what we have done over the years is to, first of all, improve the capacity of the managers in terms of knowledge, the tools that they're using. For instance, now they can sit in an air-conditioned room and monitor the vessels 24-7. That's never happened before. And so that's a huge success. So without going to sea, you would actually be able to see. Even if you decide that I cannot monitor for 24-7, you go and sleep. In the morning, you are able to track back all the vessels overnight or one week or one month earlier to see where they've been before. So that's a very huge success. We also now have fairly accurate data of what the industrial fishing fleet are taking and what the artisanal fishermen are taking. Without that information, you would not be able to tell whether they are taking within the sustainable maximum yield or not. And so these are the first few steps that we have succeeded in establishing. And therefore, we hope with additional support and continued sustained support, we'll be able to achieve others. For instance, there was a plan to actually look at increasing the contribution of fisheries into the local economy by actually adding value to the fish that is caught instead of just catching the fish like they're doing now, out at sea, transship it, and it goes. And sometimes we don't even know how much has been transshipped accurately. We now are thinking of actually getting a fish harbor where all vessels will be required to come and actually declare their catch and decide what to land in the local market, what to go out as export, and what can be processed into some other value-added products. Let me come back on to that in just a second, because there's a whole big issue in itself that I want to talk to you about. But just before we do, I want to talk about the way that your fishery is managed on the ground. And my understanding is that the Sierra Leone fishery isn't just one big management association, that it's actually broken up into 37 community management associations. Why so many and how does that work? We have noted as a ministry that managing the fishes or managing the people, as I said, it is not the fish in the water that we are managing. Rather, we are managing the people that depend on the fishes. And managing people at Sulima or at Yelibuya from Freetown would be very difficult. So what we have done is to set up small, small management committees that would manage the people in their local communities to how to access the resource and how to uh, manage the fishes access in those local communities. And then we'll coordinate with all the other communities to see how to move forward. And we'll share experiences from the different communities. This is what we decided to do so that you are managed by your own people in your own local area. We are moving towards what we call territorial use right fishery. So you manage what is within your territory, your adjacent water body, water space, and the people that are dependent on that. We have a very complex fisheries, which is a multi-species fisheries, and all the people in a particular community are targeting different species based on the gear they are using. And so management overall objective is to ensure that we don't deplete the stocks. You may have situations where some of the stocks are actually uh, overpressured, whilst others are less so because of the preferences of the fishermen in those local communities. But the important thing here is that 
Within those communities, we have what you call MCS committees, we have the environment committees, we have the bylaws development and enforcement committees. These small, small committees are actually responsible for some aspects of management. And then, of course, you have a structure they call an executive of the CMA that will look at other issues and they will be representing their community in management trainings and meetings that are conducted either in Freetown or at the district level. Now, Sally, you you mentioned a moment ago um, your kind of priorities for the future of Sierra Leone's fishery. Uh, And you were talking there about wanting to increase the the value of the contribution of the fisheries to the Sierra Leone economy rather than, you know, Sierra Leone contributing to the Chinese economy or the uh, Russian economy or the French economy by having the fish taken away. And, And the need to add value. And you talked about the need for a new harbour. Now, you'll know that recent press reports have expressed some concern about uh, a new harbour project that's being funded by the Chinese. I wonder if you could just briefly tell me what the project is and why you think it's important to Sierra Leone. The project is not a new initiative of government, um, as you may have seen in the press recently. The project has been there since the early 70s. And many of us would have thought that by now we would have had a a harbor and the excuses that fishing operators have been given for doing their transshipment offshore, not coming to our port for what we call pre-licensing inspections and so on and so forth, or port inspections would have gone away long ago. Unfortunately, anytime there is some concerted effort for achieving a harbor, there's always something coming up. For instance, I remember in 1991, Iranians were going to support Sierra Leone for a harbor construction at Kisidokia. Just by the time this program was going to take off, we had the rebel war, which lasted for like um, 10 or 11 years. So that one never came back. And then we had the World Bank coming in to help for a fish harbor again in 2010. And we tried the level that we identified Moritown for this harbor. We were going to do some land reclamation and the like. For some reason, again, we lost that opportunity because of some misprocurement issues, and we lost that opportunity. Again, we started preparing a phase two of the World Bank program, where we wanted to include a fish harbor, a land site at Tumbo, which is a very important fishing community, a land site at Konakridi, and fixing the road from Konakridi to the airport to facilitate fish export to Europe um, through air and things like that. And so, again, something happened which we cannot clearly say what what happened but I think it may be connected with Donald Trump having a different foreign policy during his administration and now we have another opportunity of the Chinese giving us a grant for the construction of a platform. $55 million is seen as a lot of money but the work involved in that will tell you that that money is only to do a platform where private sector can then come in and actually participate in building factories, maybe uh, a dock side where they can be building better boats instead of cutting all our trees to construct local boats. Maybe we'd have a place there to do fiberglass boats for fishing. We can have a place to repair trawlers for fishing. We can have probably a canning factory and other fish processing facilities within that. 
But these would all come from private sector involvement, not by the grants that is given to the Chinese and to the government by the Chinese. And the Chinese involvement isn't new. I think that it's been funding in part um, the data collection that's been used to, to monitor the fisheries. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. They have also signed an agreement with the, the government of Sierra Leone and they are conducting fish stock assessment at the moment. We are yet to see the report of that um, activity. But um, that's also a very good support. They have brought their vessels, they brought their scientists, and they are working with our own scientists to actually assess the stocks level. So, which is another very good support that we appreciate. So, the reporting in the UK, at least of well, from The Guardian, which is, I, I guess, an international newspaper, has been very much focused on the felling of 100 hectares of rainforest yeah. and the environmental impact there. You've been talking about both the economic impact and the impact on, on the fishery overall. It sounds yeah. to me as if you think that the felling of this rainforest is justified in this instance. Well, my surprise, I visited um, Black Johnson recently and I noted that the place identified as a site for the harbour is already been plundered by private investors with massive development going on there. And nobody ever talked about environmental concerns. They are already doing a massive construction work there, building walls and cutting down trees and things like that. Nobody ever talks about environmental concerns. The government says, we want to do a harbor there, everybody is shouting. <laughs> I think that shouting of environmental concerns is mostly coming to seek sympathy by landowners who have already bought land there and are seeing the potential that they are going to lose their property to government for the harbor. So they wanted sympathy. But actually, it is not much of the environmental concern because I've seen people having massive plots of land of up to the size of 35, 32 acres, 19 acres, and they've not done environmental impact assessment. If government is going to do the environmental impact assessment and they discover that it's not feasible to do a harbor there, then we are going to look for another an alternative site. These other people who are developing the place now, calling themselves landowners, who are shouting about environmental impact, have they thrown us what they intend to do in that plot of land? No, they have not. And when we see the reporting in the UK and elsewhere around the world about the environmental impact, it feels to me, Phil, like there's a bit of double standards going on. I mean, if we think about the UK specifically, HS2, which is a big train infrastructure project, is potentially damaging thousands of hectares of UK landscape and wildlife habitat just so that people can get from London to Manchester a little bit faster. So it doesn't. It seems a bit rich for us to get too excited about 100 hectares of rainforest, which, as Salyu says, is already semi-developed anyway, which is going to allow Sierra Leone to reap more of the benefits of its own fishing industry, add value, and it's clearly such a key component of Sierra Leone's economy. I think uh, what it demonstrates is that, unfortunately for headline writers, things are rarely as simple as the headline. There is a significant problem of deforestation in Sierra Leone, a significant environmental problem. Of course, that significant environmental problem is being caused by a significant increase in population and that is uh, something again which the government of Sierra Leone probably should be doing something about but as we've already discovered the resources available to the government of Sierra Leone are not significant so being able to control uh, some of these issues is not necessarily within the gift of the government it can pass laws but if it can't afford to pay for people to go out and enforce laws 
or indeed if the people who are to go out and enforce the laws can be paid more by the landowners to turn a blind eye, then quite frankly, you have a problem. So, so there are problems, yes. And I think it would be really useful, perhaps, for the international community to look at how it can help Sierra Leone in terms of uh, mitigating against some of the worst impact of deforestation, but to highlight it just over this one specific issue is possibly uh, being a little unfair. Sally, just coming back to you, do you have any concerns that the Sierra Leone fishery may get too big and that its sustainability will then come under threat again, but this time from Sierra Leone's own fishermen? Fine, this is what I think is the consideration that we should actually look at. All along um, past or recent history in fishing in Sierra Leone, we have been concentrating on exploiting the resource, harvesting, harvesting, harvesting. And I think the more the population of fishing population increase, the greater the dangers of overfishing. But if we try to diversify a bit and say, okay, let's have some people actually doing the value addition component. I mean, we break down the value chain on fishing and see how we can distribute the, the pressure along this value chain so that we can still have a few people fishing and employing more people processing and adding value to the products that is caught and still be gainfully employed than having everybody going into fishing. I mean, if you go to a fishing village in the country now, you'll find out some villages, a fisherman having 10, 15 children. None of them are going to school they are all learning how to fish. So it means when they grow up, they would also try to acquire their own small fishing boats and they would all go into fishing. And that is dangerous. But if we can get a diversified fisheries where some people are catching the fish, some people are processing it, some people are selling it, then you can still have a whole lot of people being absorbed into the sector without a danger to overfishing. And this is why I think at this point in time, it's very important to really try and see how we can diversify. Salyu, your insights have just been fascinating. And Phil, thanks so much for your contributions. That's all we have time for. I'd like to thank my guests, Salyu Sanko, coordinator of the West African Regional Fisheries Programme in Sierra Leone, and Phil Gorn, an advisor to the programme and a former fisheries minister for Isle of Man government. Phil Gorn is on Twitter as at Phil Gorn, and Salyu Sanko can be found on LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us, and share our links. Farmgate is a partnership project for Farmwell and FAI Farms. We're funded by Sankalpa and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finlow Costain. Bye for now.